You're tuned in to Mango Masala, Pi Radio's South Asian show. My name's Gaines. I'm joined here by Simran. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And her um, kicking feet, which (laughs) (laughs) caused a lot of uh, technical difficulties in the studio today. If you're wondering why you've had like um, half an hour's worth of music, it's because, um, well, Simran, why don't you tell them? Because I kicked the the computer tower and switched it off. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but luckily we're back on now and we're ready to go so we're going to treat you guys to a half hour of us just chatting about the latest news about the latest celebrity stuff more deep stuff then later on around four we've got alicia mamo of electric bazaar joining us via stream she's going to be talking about the electric bazaar boutique um, so I'll leave that for later and then to finish the episode off we've got an interview with Raf Sapira L- South London's Punjabi king or I-, I called him that actually during the interview and he was like oh no 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 and I was like you know no, you gotta back yourself like honestly like but yeah so lots in store today right so getting on to the first bit of discussion obviously if you've been on Twitter or just the news in general you will have seen that one major news point has been the release of the Sewell report, which um, was basically the reason why that happened was in light of George Floyd's killing. Um, there was a, obviously with the um, series of BLM protests that happened in light of that, um, there was a mass rethinking, not only in America, but in terms of everywhere, like, oh, how can we do this better? How can we adapt to make sure that we are not <laughs> we are not racist, basically? And so this report was set up in light of that. And they published it um, earlier this week. And the main findings were basically according to them institutional racism does not exist and i've got like the list here of what they said they said that most um bame children do as well or better than their white counterparts um success in education has transformed british society over the last 50 years into one offering greater opportunities for all they've said the pay gap between um bame individuals and the white british majority is um only 2.3 percent diversity has increased in professions that should law and medicine and what they did say is some communities continue to be haunted by historic racism which is creating deep mistrust and this could be a possible barrier to success it concluded <laughs> that the uk is not yet a post-racial country whatever that means but its success in removing race-based disparity in the education in system and economy should be regarded as a model for other countries. And again, it claimed that the British system is no longer rigged against ethnic minorities and that the UK is therefore not institutionally racist. Um, any thoughts, Simran? I just... It's just such a bold statement <clears throat> to make when a country like the one that we live in is so institutionally racist. Mm. It's so institutionally racist, outright racist, racist in so many different ways. And Mm. I think also, especially the part where they're saying minorities or people of color or BAME individuals, whatever you want to call it, are haunted by the past and are like using that as a barrier to Mm. their own success. That is essentially them saying, 
it's a you problem. Yeah, it's like proper gaslighting. Yeah, really, isn't that is. It? Yeah, like, you're right. Yeah. It is gaslighting. That is literally them saying, "No, we don't see a problem with it. There's mm-hmm. absolutely no problem on our side of things." Yeah, and this is the thing that actually like really irks me. Like, is you know how there's those um, and I'm not trying to compare the severity of these two situations. By the way, I'm just saying it's a similar sort of vibe. But you know, like those um girls that will go on like twitter and will like say something about um like you know how when it was all like oh hashtag not all men Mm -hmm. and they'll jump on that and be like yeah like we need to like care why why are we saying all men it's not all men and it's like to be like pick me me. behavior this is exactly the same thing that we see and this like irks me so much when it's um people of color who mm-hmm. do it like basically to try and be like oh pick me like uh, well it's it's also it's really it's a bit shameful because a lot of these people are actually either in high positions or aspiring yep. to get to high positions and they think right the way to do this yep. is to basically say whatever they want me to say mm-hmm. and i'll be your to i'll be your token person of color like i don't mind yeah. but like like you know what i mean but that's like, selling yourself out yeah. and do you really want to do that for the sake of Fair enough that you might get where you want to be, but think about where you've come from, everything that means. Mm. Like you're, as a person of colour living in this country, you have such a long line of like ancestry behind you that is so important, so rich and so diverse. Mm. And you're betraying that really when you're going down that path and you're purposefully, you know, selling out. Mm. Being one of those like pick, okay, pick me, I guess is, isn't really the situation, but it is like in that, in that, in that in that respect i suppose where like if you were saying if you were to say like oh yeah i guess it's not all like that it, my experience hasn't been bad mm. so how can you how does your experience represent the experience of every other like all the other millions of people of color in the country mm. it's it's just frustrating i i find like there's so many times in the show where i literally just end up making a load of random noises <laughs> just, i'm just like this is just half an hour of carlos sighing <laughs> Someone like if we've got any like fans out there who want to like start, you know what's really popular on YouTube at the moment is those um shorts, like little clips of people like like for like streamers and that. It's not like full length videos, but it's basically um they'll take like a little clip of stuff. Yeah, it's like a compilation type thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like if I've got any fans out there who want to make a compilation someone, of me sighing, someone go for um, it. <laughs> get on iMovie and yeah, <laughs> cut them well, together. Now, we've upgraded to Premiere Pro now. I'll have you know. So you know, um, <laughs> just again going back to the quite like serious topic, um, again we're not. We can't say to you, like, look, you need to believe this. You need to believe that. So we're going to now give you some stats and you go away and think what you want to think with that. Um, so in, in light of this Sewell report, which has said the UK is not institutionally racist, let's start with education. And what we'll do is I'll read out the stats and we can just have like a little mm-hmm. bit of a think about it afterwards. So in the past five years... UK schools recorded more than 60,000 incidents involving racism. 95% of black British youth have witnessed racist language at school, while 78% heard such at their workplace. Furthermore, 49% of young black people felt racism is their biggest barrier to attaining academic success, with 70% of black children feeling under pressure regarding their natural hair. 
In some British local authorities, exclusion rates are up to six times higher for black Caribbean students and nine times higher for Roma pupils compared to white pupils. 56 out of 65 novels and plays across three major examples were written by white authors. Also, only 11% of GCSE students in 2019 studied modules that made any reference to the contribution of black people to British history. Finally, black students are actually more likely to get into higher education than their white counterparts. However, only 14% achieve first class degrees compared to 30% of white people. So. (laughs) This is the thing. I think a lot of those things are outright, not just institutionally racist, but they highlight the institutional infrastructures behind them that are inherently racist. Mm. For example, the curriculum, what you said about, I think you said 65 out of 66 books to be analysed. 56 out of 65, yeah. Were were to be analysed that were all by white authors and not not by non-white authors. That's shocking. That's just like the the first stepping stone into which the curriculum has become whitewashed. I remember sitting in school in history classes learning about um, colonisation thinking this is a load of, you know, Mm. like because what I hear about it, because it wasn't long ago, what I hear about it is so different to what I get taught about it in the history books. And then, Mm. like you said, there's no looking of the contribution of like um, black people to history or any other like a minority or minority group to history. There's no, I've never learned about, you know, like all the scientific inventions that come from like the Middle East. That's Mm. never happened. I I learned about this kind of stuff from Twitter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this is the thing, like it's almost bad because you're kind of driven to find your information from arguably unreliable sources like you know how we've talked like obviously you're not a fan of clubhouse in general (laughs) like it's kind of like but then people are kind of driven to that because they're not actually taught the reality of stuff in school which is where you should actually be learning all this stuff like i found it interesting to say oh yeah the way i was taught about colonization in school is rubbish like i i didn't even get taught about that you know what i mean like the the most we got taught was like it was always like um civil rights movement in america mm-hmm. and it's like well what about here like you know what i mean like yeah it, very not, washed oh, yeah, over because in britain everything was just magically um resolved when slavery was abolished like, yeah that's the way it happened it's not that we even learned about colonization it's that we, they just like touched on it for a couple of lessons in like geography here and there because let's talk about like um superpowers and like globalization and stuff like that mm. so we were touched on colonization and i remember i did a huge coursework on it i read so many books um literally probably could it was like gold standard work this was not to toot my own horn wow and i got like a d because it wasn't what the brief was basically which admittedly is probably my fault did get a bit carried away but it wasn't basically what was right in terms of the mark schemes and stuff but i was like no no no. the information i compiled was like legit from so many different sources but because they weren't the sources that we were given to use my mark was rubbish Mm. i remember being fuming when i got that i'm fuming right now like listening to that like it's just the whitewashing of the curriculum and that's how it starts it's these these infrastructures that are in place in our society that from the beginning of time have started as whitewashed mm. and they were there was no leeway for allowing the voices of any other group to be heard therefore you get to a place like this where that whitewashing of everything in our society not just curriculums is so in the past it's so not at the forefront of what our think of where our thinking's at it makes it seem like the uk is not institutionally racist mm. and then we like 
or out like million, I think millions of people signed that petition to Gavin Williamson last wow. summer to like ask, can we please just have a rethinking of the national curriculum? To which oh yes, he, I think I signed it. Yeah, and to think that he as a white cis man like responded mm. back to it saying nah it's fine <laughs> no yeah just no you're okay like this is this is uh right we're gonna get too caught up in this so i'm just <laughs> gonna move on to the next um series of stats so this is regarding health and covid in mm. general the risk of death from covid was twice as high for black men compared to white men and 1.4 times higher for black women wow. compared to white women south asian people were 20 percent more likely to die in hospital from covid than their white counterparts 95 percent of the doctors who've died from covid were in people of color the lawrence review revealed that bame individuals have been overexposed to covid as a result of being overrepresented in industries which don't allow them to work from home as well as living in overcrowded housing black women are four to five times more likely to die during pregnancy compared to white women for mixed race women the risk is threefold and for asian women it's double furthermore black babies have a 121 percent increased chance of being stillborn compared to white babies born in the same hospital and a 50 percent increased chance of dying within their first 28 days of life that is harrowing that is insane i'm sure there's some people out there who kind of think well yeah but it's just genetics and it like but it's like even if you were going to argue and bring stats that actually showed Mm -hmm. that why why is nothing being done about it you know what i mean where are nhs stands where modern medicine stands they're both incredible at the moment 2021 like we are so advanced in technology even if it was a genetic thing that these that there was like a racialized difference between rates of being stillborn or rates of surviving covid or rates of um suffering a long-term chronic illness for example surely medicine would have caught up to that and why that shows that the uk is institutionally racist is because our medicine and our technology hasn't and they haven't bothered mm. to and there was a whole thing of like they surveyed nurses and doctors and they said they were taught that like people of color especially black women felt pain less they were under that impression that they felt mm. felt less pain so they were less likely to receive painkillers or epidural during childbirth which resulted in more traumatic birth experiences more like um physical trauma during the birth more emotional trauma during the birth like it's incredible the amount of stuff that just gets washed over Mm. because of the way it's been taught yeah and i've seen some stuff before about um like various um symptoms which are involved the way that things look and i know that um people of color have maybe come in and um have um shown this to their doctors and they they just said oh no it's fine because yes. they because they can't see it because yes. on on white skin the way things mm-hmm. look it's a lot more stark there's a lot more comparison. and that's what's in the medical textbook as yeah. well don't forget is the is a like a white with white skin say mm. with psoriasis or eczema or any mm. kind of condition that that's how the doctors have been taught to recognize a certain condition so when i come in with brown skin or someone comes in with black skin mm. then that doctor can't tell the difference they can't discern that that's x condition or y condition or no condition at all so they're more likely to receive no diagnosis it comes back to the fact of um i know a lot of people kicked off like it was literally halima's first show shock horror (laughs) but like when she was saying like about how um british people don't believe that they're racist and everyone Mm. kicked off like oh how can you say britain's racist this that the other people don't realize that racism isn't just going up to someone 
or yes. harboring views towards a certain race and like making them known like that's not just what racism is racism can be non-intentional because it can be structural which is what we're talking about institutional racism mm -hmm. systemic racism it's racism that is embedded within society and the structures of society and obviously it's not going away anytime soon if people aren't doing anything i would say it. on three levels racism exists on this country number one is outright racism you know you hate crimes you're getting called a slur in the street or anything of the sort I can tell you firsthand that exists. I got called a slur a month ago. In oh. No, no, no. Yeah, about a month ago in the Asda car park. <laughs> you know? Like, it's just crazy. I would say on a slightly smaller level, you have your microaggressions, which is the stuff like, um, say, for example, black women feeling that they don't, that they didn't receive a job role or because of the type of hair that they have or the hairstyle that their hair is in that has been deemed unprofessional. I know there was a big issues in schools of a lot of people saying that um, Afro textured hair is unprofessional. Obviously it's not, it's just texture of the hair. Um, and there's nothing you can do about that. And then I'd say on an even bigger level, you have your in institutional, your structural racism. And I think at all three levels, that is very much present and rife in this country. Mm, for sure. I'm hearing a bit of a weird noise. I don't know what that it's is. It's outside. Yeah, why, why is it coming through? Anyway, um, getting back to the stats, wealth and economy. On average, white British individuals hold the highest wealth in Britain per adult at 197,000 per adult. Um, black African individuals on average hold the lowest wealth in Britain. This falls at 24,000 family wealth per adult, which is under one eighth of the typical wealth held by a white British household. Whilst one in 10 white households live in poverty in the UK, this is the case for one in five black households. The stats are worse for Asian households with one in four living in poverty. Furthermore, government policy decisions such as the benefit cap removal of child poverty targets, etc. have arguably unequally impacted black Bangladeshi and Pakistani households. On average, black graduates earn 23.1% less than their white counterparts. Rates of COVID unemployment were twice as high for Bain people compared to white people. Whilst black workers face a 13.8% unemployment rate, this is more than three times the rate of employment for white people. And finally, one in 10 women of colour um, were put out of work by COVID and the overall BAME unemployment rate rose from 5.8% to 9.5% during the pandemic. So basically, if you're a person of colour, chances are you're either being put out of work or you're being forced to go on the front line and literally yeah. like... <sighs> and that does nothing but highlight an institutional and infrastructural problem that we have because the fact that what are the barriers in place for people of colour that they only have the option to go into such jobs like that, like frontline mm. working jobs. And I was going to say, like the fact that poverty exists in this country, full stop, forget, yeah. forget race for a second... The fact that poverty exists in a country like this that is so prideful on how developed we are how amazing our nhs is like how you know first world and you're not supposed to say that anymore but like you know that kind yeah. of classification if we're going to go along with that if we're going along with this pride of britain thing the fact that poverty exists in the first place highlights the institutional problem that we have it's infrastructural it's structural it's societal on all levels that's a massive problem the fact that that even exists in the first place so the fact that we have that existing as a problem and then the disparities that we have between white people and non-white people within that just only highlight that at some level, 
I just don't understand how you can't how you can turn your nose up to the fact that racism doesn't exist. <sighs> like there you go, guys. There's some more like complications of me just making <laughs> random noises. Oh dear. Like yeah, just running a bit out of time now, so I'm just thinking the final stats are in relation to policing and the criminal justice system. Um, so black people are over nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people, despite evidence of the disproportionate way in which stop and search policies have been used against black people. The government has consistently increased its use. Black people are over three times more likely to be detained than white people. Young black people are nine times more likely to be imprisoned than their white counterparts. Despite black people making under four percent, making up for under four percent of the UK population, over the last five years, over twelve percent of the tasers used by police were in situations involving black people. And I think this was like probably the stat that like worried me the most was that for BAME children, they're three times more likely to have a taser used against them than white children. First of all, why are you using why a taser using against a children? Taser in the first on a child. Place? Over the last 10 years, 164 people have died in or following police custody in England and Wales, though according to the 2011 census, black people account for, like I said, less than 4% of the population. They accounted for a disproportionate 8% of these deaths. 97% of the reports of police racism face no action. In the past five years, 5,000 complaints were made to police in England and Wales, with only 153 being upheld. Looking at the Met Police in particular, 98% of the 1,368 allegations made against their staff were dismissed. The Lamy Review concluded that BAME individuals still face bias and discrimination at the hands of this criminal justice system. Um, um, although, like I said, black people make up 4% of the population, they make up 12% of the prison population, and um, 27% of the prison population is BAME, despite only 14% of the, the UK population wow. being BAME. Following this review, the government vowed to look carefully into the 35 recommendations made, and then four years later came back and claimed that institutional racism doesn't exist. The Met Police has also being known to over-release crimes to the media. So when a black person is sentenced, 29% um, of the people being sentenced are black, yet 44% of the crimes are released to the media. And they're known to under-release crimes when a white person is sentenced. So they make up 45% of the sentence, but 33% of those are released to the media. And this is... Yeah, there we go, guys. So, again, like, we're not allowed to, like, say um you need to think this you need to think that like and i don't think we should be allowed to say that because you should be able to make your own informed decisions but listening to those stats i don't really understand how you can argue that it doesn't no. and i'm kind of like i think the sewer report was like nine people um and the thing is i think going back to the, what we we're talking about before i think a lot of them were people of color and i'm just a bit like don't sell out for your race man yeah and also like what like literally what what like and it also it kind of diminishes the the effect of doing these reports because mm -hmm. if they're going to release that report and th those statements and people can very easily like me like yes i've like had like a privileged um education etc and i'm high higher educated but i can easily go away and find these facts and put it forward yeah. like you, you and you've been like you've been put in this position specifically you're trained to do this report like it kind of makes the whole 
system just seemed a bit rigged. I don't know. Well, the system is rigged. We we all know that. I just think allegedly, you can't allegedly. take you can't take the experience of nine individuals that are willing to sell out. Let's be honest, mm. um, and put that at the forefront to make such a wild statement to to say that the UK is not institutionally racist. That absolutely devalues and just nullifies the experience of every person of color in this country. Who I can't tell you one person that hasn't experienced at least a microaggression of some sort. Or if not a flat out hate crime. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think this is the thing when you were talking before about the levels of racism. Mm-hmm. I think like certain there's levels to everything. But what's um, wrong is when people try to... Like the, it, it just becomes a thing where it's sort of like... Um, oh, was it, w- w- was it racism or was it covert racism? Why does that matter? If it's racism, racism it's racism. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, dear. And- That's the thing about microaggressions that annoys me that I kind of, before it had a label as microaggressions, I'd say a few years ago, experiencing them growing up, it'd be like one of those things where you can't speak out about it because if you do, you sound crazy. Yeah. And there's like, there's been people that have been saying this stuff for ages and mm-hmm. it, I don't know what it is, this like kind of shift in this um, social awareness, maybe. I, I don't know. But for some reason, people are actually recognizing it. And it, it's, it's, um, what's the word? Is it gaslighting when you like, you've been saying it for ages and people weren't taking you seriously and now suddenly like. I'd say it's a form of gaslighting. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's definitely gaslighting, like you said earlier, is them saying. Um, you guys saying that the, the UK is institutionally racist is a barrier to your own progression and you're deluded for thinking that. <sighs> That's a joke. I think as well, it's like, why is it always like on like um, the, the what they call the breakfast TV shows? Yeah. It's always a group of white people debating Well, they know their demographic. Ra- this is the thing. <laughs> they know their viewership. So they're just pandering to their audience, I suppose. But there's like, why are a group of white people discussing whether racism exists? The whole definition of yeah. racism is that it involves a power dynamic. And mm-hmm. just like we live in a patriarchal society, we live in a white dominated, white power supreme, <laughs> supreme society. Like that, like it's just fact. And so therefore, like white people can't, they can't talk about racism. Like, I'm sorry, like, yes, you can have your opinions. And yes, I'm not trying, I'm looking at the camera. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to like cut off your free speech or anything. But think if you're white, why do you want to talk about racism? Like you need to listen, not talk, please. Thank you. Right. And on Period. That note, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right and we should now be joined by alicia from electric bazaar so alicia how are you yeah no i've been i've been really good yeah even though it's been tough during lockdown but i think now that we're seeing the end of it it seems to be a bit better and the weather's been good as well which is great i was gonna say the weather has changed everything like the weather has changed absolutely <laughs> It's still it's still light at like seven eight pm. We can still go to the park, like sitting around, just chilling. Oh yeah. my god, it's the best. Mm. I love in the. Pl- I'm loving your setup as well, like the plants and everything. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's quite cool. Yeah, I'm at my friend's place in London. Um, because I had to drop some electro bazaar pieces off today, so for a shoot. So yeah, she's got a lot of plants. She loves them. <laughs> <laughs> So just for the people that might not know, do you want to just tell us a bit about what Electric Bazaar actually is and why you decided to start it? 
Mm -hmm. So Electric Bazaar is a sustainable, um, modest clothing brand. And we also sell jewellery, which is all like handmade by artisans from different regions, particularly in Pakistan. Um, but we also have like Indian and Nepali and Afghani styles as well. Um, and we started it basically because... Um, I wear hijab and I'm a Muslim and, you know, we dress modestly and um, there wasn't really like kind of a cool, like young focused brand that are like really tailored to our kind of style. And, you know, a lot of us have a connection to back home. So I'm half Pakistani. So I always used to go to Pakistan in the summers and I loved kind of the embroidery styles and just the clothing styles that was out there and kind of bridging that gap between being like living in the West and living in the UK and kind of connecting to our heritage as well. So creating pieces that infuse that, that were modest as well and also sustainably made was, um, you know, that was a big ethos behind the brand is to make it ethical and make sure the artisans are given their, you know, the due uh, pay and good conditions and also opportunities for women as well. Um, so yeah, that's basically kind of what, what we do and why why we we became. I really, really like that because growing up, I had a lot of friends, like female friends who are Muslim as well. And they yeah. were very vocal about the fact that they found it a really big barrier to dress modestly or yeah. to keep hijab while trying to be trendy and fitting in and stuff. So the fact that I think you found that there was a definite gap in the market for that, that I think a lot of young girls probably do feel the same is really fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, you I think yeah. Sorry, go on. I think like now modest clothing has become more of like it's more of a trend and there's a lot more options available but before it was really difficult to like try and find those trendy pieces so yeah there was a definite gap when we started. Talking a bit about like the trendy nature of it um I've obviously I've heard you talk about Electric Bazaar before um and yeah. one thing that stood out to me was when you were talking about how much each piece actually means because i think you've talked before about the embroidery styles etc in each piece is almost yeah. unique and i think with a lot of um appropriation of these styles because i know you've also done the webinar on this issue as well um a lot of the time that design gets lost but i know with you guys it is very much like each one has its own individual meaning whether it's the embroidery style from the particular area it's from or so do you feel like having say because i'm not sure actually do you have multiple versions of the same piece or is it each piece is unique yeah, so a um, majority of our pieces is each piece is a one-off um, because of the kind of different embroidery styles. Like we have like different patchworks that we integrate into the pieces and they're just one-off pieces. Or for, for example, we get them hand block printed and things like that. And the ones that we, because we're trying to have more size options and stuff. So the ones that we kind of get designed in-house and things like that, we've created more pieces for each um, design, but majority are one-offs. Um, yeah. So they are all individual and um, they in, like we have hand hand embroidery, mirror work um, hand block printing, all these kind of artisanal techniques that are getting lost because, you know, of mass production and people just doing printing of these styles to time, kind of replicate them. But it's not really the same as the original process. So we're trying to keep those alive, basically. So do you find by doing that, do you really get to connect with the manufacturers and the designers themselves? 
Yeah, so we're very like small scale and we always work with like local artisans, so local low income artisans, because a lot of the time in like back home in Pakistan, India, they don't really get um, recognition and they don't get paid a lot. They get paid very poorly. So that's why these kind of crafts are slowly kind of dying out and being replaced by the mass produced stuff. So we really look for the kind of low income artisans and work with them really closely, um, which kind of makes it even more special when the final piece is made because it goes through getting the fabrics that are all locally sourced and um you know handwoven fabrics then getting them print block printed or embroidered and then finally goes to our tailor who's a woman that um lives in Lahore and she kind of works from home um she also teaches sewing to other women and yeah it's very much like a very small team but it makes it a lot more personal each piece Definitely. And I was going to say it sounds very like grassroots level, like very connected from beginning to end of the kind of supply chain. And almost in that yeah. sense, you can you really know that it's very well ethically sourced. I feel like a lot of these big brands are obviously trying to do the ethically sourced business or go into, like I don't know, recycled fashion and recycled mm. garments and stuff like that, which is obviously great because that's them being like a lot more aware and socially aware but you they're not clear about how they're going about it they're just kind of slapping the ethically sourced label on it whereas like yeah. well when Definitely. you explain that you're like um the the entire chain of which that you go through to you know find your garments find the textiles and then bring them to yourselves and sell them on obviously shows every yeah. step of the line of which how you have thought through and made that ethical yeah definitely and you see a lot of these big brands kind of hiding behind their supply chains like yes. there's like a big scandal or you know something about low wages or anything like this they're like oh it's the supply chain like we don't really know we fa- like we you know if we know how each piece gets produced and we're like a small brand i'm sure these big brands can be held accountable for for those processes as well um but they choose to kind of hide away i think sure. a lot of the time do you feel like um, these big brands are actual competition for you or do you feel like what you're offering is so unique that people that are coming to you for that product aren't necessarily going to even consider these big brands? Because that's why you started in the first place, right? was because they, they weren't doing it. Yeah, I guess like... I, I don't I wouldn't class it as competition because what we're doing like you said is completely different and you know that's fast fashion they they release collections every week you know always updated the sites with new pieces with us like one collection takes a whole process and it's uh, you know we release a few pieces each year and you know it, it's just so much more complicated to just release collections and collections so I think the whole ethos and what we're trying to promote is choosing well buying less as well so even though we're trying to sell our clothing we're also kind of trying to promote more ethical and conscious consumerism within like our like our audience as well um so like the designs we make are we try and make them more timeless and stuff that you can literally cherish for for the future and pass down and things like that because of all the handicraft work that's gone into it so yeah i would say you know there are a lot, a lot of brands doing modest clothing now and that is a competition because I think that's always going to be there people are always going to buy with, uh, with the trends but we're trying to promote you know maybe choosing better maybe not buying impulse buying like I used to buy so many clothes from ASOS here there everywhere because I love fashion but then just kind of thinking about what are the process that goes behind that like how are those clothes made and that 
makes you more conscious the next time you you decide to buy or maybe research the brand beforehand and see oh what they're doing actually ethical or they just like you said sticking that label on it without any accountability yeah and when we say asus by the way we're not coming for asus which is that's just an example of a fast fashion brand there's there's like there's a lot of good brands on there as well you know there's they they host sustainable brands as well asus marketplace like it's kind of looking for those alternatives within what's already out there i think Mm, definitely um i know obviously your um education um did geography and i think you did a master's as well right um, yeah, has... international development. Yeah, so it's quite related to sustainability and everything. Mm. So I was wondering, is has that been more of an inspiration and a help for you, or do you think it's more your actual? Obviously, like you said, you're a um, Pakistani woman who wears a hijab. You wear these um, items of clothing. Do you think it's it's been more of like a personal thing or has it been more oh i'm studying this stuff all about sustainability and i want to do that yeah no i think it's definitely more my heritage and being close to that since a young age that inspired me to do this but of course like my studies have informed certain aspects so i might have a better understanding of sustainability because i've studied it all throughout my degrees um but definitely it's just going to pakistan every year since i was young seeing these processes up clothes because um in pakistan it's very common to get your clothes tailor-made design them yourselves picking out every aspect of what your final piece is going to look like so being involved in those processes seeing the women sewing seeing the handicrafts in action really made me appreciate that and say you know if this was you know someone in the west they would have their own studio they would have they would be like very revered and um i think to see kind of how low their status is there i really wanted to kind of help uplift those really really talented and skilled artisans that are there so yeah i think it's definitely more my connection to the culture and appreciation of that um which led me to, along this path but i think studies really helped kind of consolidate that for sure mm-hmm. um, has covid this is going to sound like a stupid question but how i'm not going to say has covid affected you but how has covid affected your business um it's definitely been a bit difficult and challenging because um of course we can't do in-person events and we used to do a lot of pop-ups and market stalls and um i think we were there when we had our fashion show at the whitworth so like all these events like create like a big buzz and you know people get to see your products in person and buy and things like that so not having that that has been a bit more challenging in terms of the selling aspect but we have been seeing a little bit of a pick off up in online orders because I think people are shopping and looking more online now um, and also it's been a bit difficult getting the stock over from Pakistan like with cargo delays and things like that with um, you know not as many flights coming and things like that so it's been tricky but I'm excited to hopefully start doing events soon we've got a, a craft and flea market coming up which is taking place in Manchester in like a couple of weeks so it'll be kind of getting back into action which I'm really excited about. Cool, yeah. So do you want to tell us the details of that in case anyone is interested? Um, I think it's being held at Manchester Cathedral um, and it's on the 17th of April, so Saturday, two Saturdays from now. Um, and it's really cool. There's loads of different makers, like loads of stores that are there and then Electron Bazaar is going to be one of them. So, yeah. Sweet. Um, just thinking again about the um, creation of Electric Bazaar, I know it's um, you and it's your friend Shamima is that correct yeah so um, yeah 
like i know you said like the reasons for which you made it but how did the actual right yeah we're gonna do this how how did that happen um so we actually met at university in first year and we both had like really similar styles in terms of incorporating like our asian heritage um because she's indian and like i said i'm my mom's from pakistan so we kind of really bonded on our style and a lot of people at uni were also like oh we like what you wear like always kind of commenting on mine and shabima's outfits and things like that so then we just kind of we're like let's let's design a first collection and I said I'll get the stuff made in Pakistan because I used used to go in summer for like the whole two months so I was like I'll have time to kind of do all that setting up there um and then we said we'll give it a go if it works it works if it doesn't then it's fine so we put like a small investment each into it and then um yeah we created our first collection um took pictures put it on our website and from there we really carried on because people actually liked and there was a demand for it so um since then we've just kind of invested everything back into the business so whatever we've made we've invested back we've never like taken anything out of it so it really took that time to build it up to what it is now that's amazing no yeah no like literally seeing it as maybe over the past five years four or five years i think it's been about and seeing it so i say that again yeah i think it's been about three four years that we since we started it yeah yeah and seeing it grow to what it is now it's been like it's just been a really pleasant experience i mean i was just kind of just watching it blossom etc and seeing it the thing is i think it kind of shows that there's there is a need for it because it's still around it's still relevant and there's sure there's plenty of people that are still waiting for hopefully once covid's over the next collection can go ahead and yeah no like i think hopefully it's only onwards and upwards for you throughout yeah i hope so yeah thank you that's really nice to hear no and it's honestly so admirable to hear you like talk about how it is whatever you make from it goes back into the business and it really shows like the reasons that you're doing it i I wanted to ask as well because obviously you've talked about um you both put like a small investment in how how have you found the whole navigating it because essentially what you've got here is it might not not be necessarily for profit but it, it's a business so like, how have you yeah. gone about actually just you to like trying to figure out oh we need to do this we need to do that like did you have yeah. any help or was it just the case of like watching some youtube videos or what was it um i mean from the beginning like i said it was very basic we both put mini in i got the stuff made in pakistan with we would literally had one tailor one like it was very very small scale and then from there like in terms of getting ourselves out there and help on the ground on the UK side, selling events, things like that. It really was getting that help from our family, our friends and like creatives around Manchester, collaborating with different people, you know, getting friends from university to photograph, to video, do videography and just all that collaboration and even till this day, you know, like we have our friends modeling for us, like that really helped us to kind of reduce our costs and really focus on getting the business out there with, you know, limited funds as you do have when you're a small business and you're first starting out. Um, so, yeah, without that, it would have been really, really difficult um, for just us two to do everything because there's a lot. You're doing basically every aspect of the business. You're, you know, packaging orders, you're delivering them to the post office, you're, you know, organising events, planning the the look for the shoot. You're doing everything. So, um, yeah, it is a big, t- it does take a lot of time. But I think if that passion wasn't behind 
loved it and that social cause wasn't there. For example, we have like a sewing machine project. I don't know if you know about that, but um, like um, we fund sewing machines for women who can't afford them, but who are really skilled in sewing so that they can start off their own like debt-free businesses from home because in Pakistan and a lot of the areas that we work in the women aren't really encouraged to go out and work so this is an income that they can have within the home and things like that and it really helps to support them and their families and um, last time I went I got to meet some of the women that we donate the sewing machines to and it's made like such a massive difference in their lives and um, I think having that really just motivates you and pushes you to to carry on. And even when it's difficult and challenging, as it has been over COVID and like other periods, um, you know, that that's what drives drives me to continue, I think, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, honestly, it's like so inspiring, like hearing you talk about it. Um, just coming like to the end of the interview now, um, I wanted to ask, aside from the 17th, um, can people look forward to and also what are your aspirations for electric bazaar in general like where do you see yourself going in the next few years yeah so hopefully like once everything's you know the restriction we've got the 17th which is confirmed for the craft and flea market but um we're going to be hopefully planning another fashion show or something similar and another pop of events so keep your eyes out for that um um hopefully like if you guys follow us on instagram and stuff we'll be updating on there but for the future i just really want to focus on working with even more talented artisans back home and in different countries like we're mainly in pakistan now but i'd love to expand to india neighboring like countries like we do work with afghani artisans that are based in pakistan as well but expanding that further a bit and yeah just making more of a difference to these um these people's lives um and also um you know here kind of promoting that conscious consumerism and making people like aware of of kind of fast fashion industry and how exploitative it can be um so yeah i think that's where i'd like to see electric bazaar just keep growing basically and keep doing what we're doing sure so if anyone is listening to this that didn't know about you before where can they find you um so they can find us on instagram at electric underscore bazaar and we've got a website as well electric-bazaar.com where we've got a lot more information about like our story and how we're working towards like the sustainable development goals and if you want a bit more of background about us um and also we've joined tiktok recently yeah. so we're trying to get big on there <laughs> if anyone wants to give us a follow um it's just electric bazaar as well well, it's funny you should mention that actually because um I've actually seen like one of the TikToks that you did um um to the yeah. Justin Bieber song. And that's the song that Simran has been begging us to play. <laughs> so we're gonna give that a play next, actually. <laughs> um Peaches. Um but before that, thanks a lot, um Alicia, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hopefully... Thank you so much for coming on. It was lovely to have you. Let me just say the work you're doing is absolutely incredible. I'm like so impressed thank you guys for having me now hopefully we'll be able to come to one of your events at some point for sure definitely i'll keep you posted about them cheers thanks a lot now i was lucky enough on thursday to be able to catch up with south london's raf sapira he is a i want to say up and coming but literally his latest video has three and a half million views over that so like he's definitely yes like he's going places and yeah i had a pleasant experience of like chatting to him and he was such a like laid back nice guy like honestly um 
I felt a bit shooketh to be in his presence, <laughs> if I'm really honest. But Carlos like, was starstruck. You <laughs> called was him, what did you call him? A king or something? I called him a... I, I, I started, the, like I started off the king. interview by calling... Oh, yeah. Um, um, South London's Punjabi king, Ralph Sapir. And he was like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm humble, I'm humble. I'm here like, for the uplifting, Carlos. I like yeah, it. Yeah. Well, you... Um, Southall's... Um, Punjabi... Oh, it's Slough, is that yeah. it? You know what? I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Like allow it. Yeah. What like, my styles? What? <laughs> I didn't do geography. Um, Slough's seek. I'll take a Punjabi prince. <laughs> yeah, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. You, you need to live in somewhere I can do like a militaration. Then it would be better. But yeah, um, have a listen to the interview and enjoy. I got a lot to be putting into the game, my brother. But thank you for having me on today, Carlos. No, like, you got to back yourself and like honestly, like the how far you've come in the amount of time that you've actually been doing music for real, like because you only released your debut official single like last November, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mad, mad when you put it like that. Yeah, it's you know what? It's it's um, I know in this day and age it sounds silly, but I'm a huge believer of prayers and blessings and um. I have been very fortunate, don't get me wrong, the hard work's been put in, whether that's, you know, in the video side of stuff, whether that's in the music side of stuff, you know, doing the vocal practicing, making sure I do the R's. Um, but along with that, man, it's just, I feel there's a lot of luck and um, a lot of people's blessings and prayers, man. So I'm just, I'm fortunate and I'm happy to be here. It's like, I mean, obviously like in, it's in the name, like nearly one, but like, did yeah. you actually expect it to blow up like it has done? You know what? I didn't expect it to do um, the numbers and get the traction that it's got. Cause um, I was saying this earlier to my friend as well. Cause it's like, there's definitely a rise I would say in like the hip hop um, sound or aesthetic in Punjabi music. Especially like the main Gare Punjabi music that like in India and Punjab, the man are dropping hip hop after hip hop. But it's still very West Coast, bro. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. And um, with West Coast, um, it's kind of the, you know, the very on beat kind of rhythms, um, a very commercial sound. And I've always been more susceptible to the East Coast um, kind of, you know, that, that pocket of New York music, man, from, I would say, like, from 90 like from 93 to 96 and um that's what i wanted to bring um into this but obviously as an artist i'm gonna make what i kind of want to make um so i was really you know grateful that the label let me express what my sound and how i want to depict the raf sapira brand but i'll be honest bro i don't think you'll do that good because it's just that boom bap slow kind of beat you know people like faster bpms in this day and age something they can dance to but i wanted guys to have um a bit of a listening song like you put this on and you rock your head to it man like if you dance you know you might do a little you know gangsters don't dance they boogie so you know that's why you might do a little millie one step but it's just a yeah. very london thing it's very just it's just you know big yeah. sound but relaxed vibes I noticed that like towards the end of the video you were doing like a little bit of like a bop to me. It wasn't like any like choreography or anything. It just seemed like very natural just moving along with it. Yeah, man, like I, I said to um Frenzy as well, I was there like, bro, man's gonna put a little 
put a little something something in the video and he was there like yeah it's a good idea but we didn't really know what it was and then on the day like whilst the camera guys in front of me i was just like everyone just do this i just done a little you know what i'm saying a little shoulder shimmy but yeah man realistically bro the thing is i just want when you watch this it's an audio visual experience whether that was my debut glossy rhythm whether that's milli one you should be able to watch this and just know oh that's what these brothers are on like this is their vibe mm -hmm. and um i think so far so good and like thinking about like what you're saying about just that's what they're on obviously um glossy rhythm was more of like a um I think just more like just like turning up like sort of thing like just like celebration and that um so what's millie one about to you in comparison to that it's um in terms of like the actual poetry for the song i would say it's basically my stance um in everything i've stepped into bro i i'm i haven't got no industry godfather i, I don't belong to no rich family that's given me the bringing all i've ever known is hustling and i do it you know i want to live it to the limit but i want to love it a lot so you know this goes out to all the hustlers out there um that are putting in the shifts and making ends meet and making things happen because you know what we've only got one life um and i'm gonna live that through the strength of my chest i don't want to disrespect anyone doesn't mean you have to be a rude individual about it but at the same time as a man i've got to go out and get mine and that goes out to every man woman or whatever you identify yourself as that is for you man you got mm -hmm. one life live it large sure i suppose it's kind of like being unapologetic but not rude like you know what i mean it's like you can yeah, be man. like yeah it's just like it's like i'm out here and it's like with all due respect but like i'm i'm here still so Sure. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like um, working with Frenzy again? Because obviously you worked together in the past um, on Narg. So like, what was it like coming back together again? Obviously, obviously he's been in the game for maybe a bit longer. So mm. what was it like collaborating again and this time it being your own fresh music rather than taking on something that's done before and putting your own spin on it? Yeah, I mean, like since Narg, we had a huge kind of like demand like on a yo we want to see you guys together again we want to see you guys together again and we was kind of doing little things that we done um capital gains which was in you know uh respect to the farmer protest movement and um you know we we were doing stuff but that actual original product i really enjoyed the process of making it because um me and frenzy have been you know mates for a long time but to actually put all that friendship stuff you know over there and now we're in studio and like how are we recording this how do you want my vocal i come from a visual directing background so i know when you are ultimately when you're directing you know if this succeeds if this fails it's on the director's head you know what i'm saying so mm -hmm. the crew essentially put themselves at your mercy and similar although i'm the face of all of this but as a as a vocal artist i know no matter who the producer is i'm ultimately performing according to you know their direction and that was something that i really enjoyed in putting this together um you know being in studio being there with the engineer seeing how frenzy's um working and putting everything together and um yeah man i want more days like that to be honest <laughs> Yeah, so you can probably say that we will, maybe not in that the near future, but definitely in the future, expect like another collaboration, hopefully. Oh, 100%, 100%. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that creation process, 
um, how do you actually go about making your music? Because I'd say it's authentically Punjabi, but then also authentically British as well. And one thing I found really interesting as well is hearing you before, because I wasn't expecting that, to hear you talking um, when you're referring to hip hop in general, in terms of um, its like origins in terms of America. So thinking, oh, this is West Coast, this is East Coast. So I found that very interesting to hear you talking from that perspective, but then your music is both authentically Punjabi and British at the same time. So how, how do you go about actually making that and how important is that to you? I think the, the main thing, I think with more releases, um, people will start obviously observing this but um, Raf Sapira is an audio visual project um, and product rather because I come from a film directing background um, I know that although I'm coming as a vocalist onto the scene like if you hear me and I started off doing covers um, and a lot of people thought that I weren't from UK and then mm. when I'm on Insta story I'm chatting in my, in my London South London manner People they're like, what? You're from the ends. Like I thought you was from that like, India. I thought you was from Punjab. So that's how it should be, man. If you're a Punjabi desi artist, according to the kind of music I'm into, you need to be. Well, I'm essentially trying to bring that pair desi fendu vibe. But coming from the borough that I've been raised in, you know, I have to be unapologetically British. And um, you know, I think I think there is a huge youth subculture that is literally in the underground that is at a boiling point and i'm just a small part of that man and mm. i feel this is just gonna explode and you know as far as i'm concerned i don't really know if there's any other um you know desi acts in south london but that's what i'm saying it's like if we're not dropping stuff if we're not out here putting the material out there you know how would i know there probably there's, there's probably a bag of folk artists sitting in london sitting over here sitting there so um the main thing is repping the culture, repping the art, and just repping the streets, man. So when you're watching this, you're there like, you know what? I don't like his music, but you see what these guys are on, yeah? I'm on that too. This makes sense to me. And I think I've had that response, whether it's the youth in UK, whether it's the youth in Canada, America. Um, Canada and America in particular have shown mad love since Glossy Reading. So there's definitely something there, man, that's going on with um young south asians punjabis even if you're not punjabi this is going around the world right now bro and and no one can deny that and we'd be stupid to not act up on it so like do you think like post covid that might be something you might want to tap into like going visiting these areas where you have been shown love and like not only performing but also like collaborating with people on the scene there because i know canada especially like i've spoken to um a few like um, Punjabi friends of mine and that they were insane about how like Canada especially has like a really thriving scene and you just you wouldn't think that but it just it is it's there and think as well like listening to the songs on the radio like um I have noticed like when I look up the artists afterwards oh they're from Canada so like yeah. do you think it would be nice to kind of go over there like see what they're about possibly collaborate that sort of thing after covid 100 percent, my bro but now even with my setup like i've as i mentioned i haven't got no industry bringing i've literally just come out here and i'm doing what i want to do and i think the whole trajectory and um, the momentum for the canada scene is these brothers just got up and said well if we ain't getting brought in we're gonna make our own scene and respectfully so and props to them man they done mm -hmm. that man and it's like that is a very prominent uh, commercial and relevant 
I would say, sound in the Punjabi scene right now, man. I've been shown a lot of love, whether it's from individuals or even like producers um, from that side of the world. So yeah, bro, let things open up. And I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's like, I'm a British product, but at the same time, I'm not a, a, a singer, I'm not a director for, for UK or for, I am involved in the arts for planet Earth. So wherever the work takes me, if I vibe to it as an artist, I'm there, bro. Yes, that was Raf Sapira talking about his new single, Millie One. And you can find the full interview on our YouTube at Mango Masala Radio. Um, you should go give that a watch. Probably going to wrap things up a bit early here as we've come to the end of the show now. Um, to finish off, I'm going to play a track by Charlie XCX, also featuring um, Tovlo and Alma. And... I saw like this tweet the other day which was getting like millions of likes and it kind of annoyed me a bit because it was saying about how um oh did anyone know that Charlie XCX is half Gujarati I had no idea and I was like mate how would you not know that like we've been new like we've known for ages but um yeah um if you didn't know Charlie XCX is um half Gujarati and that is giving us a free pass to play a bit of her music on the show this is probably my favorite track by hers it's called Out of My Head and yeah thanks a lot for tuning in um make sure to follow us on all socials at mango masala radio or if you're on twitter at mango masala mcr um we upload videos all the time we upload our full episodes to spotify so you can go back and listen to there and yeah we've got a lot of exciting content coming your way so definitely stay tuned <laughs>